Time comes for us all. But is there something we can do about that? Today, we're going to talk to a man who, in his own journey for self improvement, decided to help others as they get a little bit older. So, we're going to hit that music and we're going to get started. Joining me today is performance and longevity expert, Dr. Kian Vu, or as I like to call him, Dr. V. Actually, I just call him Doc. What's up, Doc? How's it going, Bruce? It's good to be on this show. Thank you for joining me. Now, the reason I asked you on, because one, I tackled you at the gym, but that is not the point. The reason I asked you on is because you've focused your career on helping people attain better performance in their lives to get themselves into shape. And you didn't just do this because it seemed like a fun thing to do. You went on a little bit of a journey yourself, didn't you? Absolutely. You know, many people that end up uh, helping others in, in one particular niche, I tend to feel that people have gone through their own struggles and journeys. And from that place, uh, then they realize some of their gifts. So wh wh wherever people might be struggling right now, uh, who might be listening to listening to this, I hope you can recognize that my own struggles were were my greatest gifts, and and people could find that for themselves as well. But I would, uh, you know, I'll, I, I'll try not to be, you know, too long with this. But you know, my story really begins back uh, during my birth. I was born in post-war Vietnam, and so. My parents actually had to escape. They basically seized all businesses and, and, and the current monetary um, value that, that any family had. My, my parents were like, there's no future for him here. So we escaped by refugee boat. I was on a boat with 2,000 other refugees. And if you see pictures, we were crammed like sardines. I was actually the only infant to have survived. We were on that boat for eight months. Were you the only infant on the boat or? No, no, there were probably, I think there were over 2000 people that were on the boat and, you know, probably up to a hundred people had died, either falling, falling off the boat or they died of, of diseases like dysentery. And there were other infants on the boat, other children as well. I just happened to be the only infant to have survived. I have to ask, how long did that trip take? Do you know? How long were those people stuck on that boat? We were on the boat for eight months. So that boat was initially supposed to, uh, you know, we, we, we sailed from Vietnam to the Philippines, and that only took a couple of days. Uh, however, the Philippines really didn't have anywhere for us to dock. You've got 2,000 refugees and just no space for people to dock. And so uh, we were on that boat. You know, they basically brought water and rice in uh, for us, but we were pretty much stuck on that boat, boat for eight months. Um, when room opened up in the refugee camps, that's when we were, we were allowed to, to go in. Um, and my mom, who knew a little bit of English at the time, wrote to lots of institutions. And as an early Christmas present in November of 1979, we were sponsored to America by a Catholic church. And you would say, wow, Ken, you are this only infant to have survived. You are now in this land of the free. You must have lived a very grateful life. I'd imagine you dealt with an incredible amount of racism, hatred, and generalized resentment of you even having been here. Absolutely. That's exactly what I got. You know, I got bust to, you know, I, I grew up in Chinatown, LA, which, which was an immigrant neighborhood, but, but I got bust to a more affluent area for school. And I was constantly being teased and bullied for, you know, being too short for the holes in my hand-me-down clothes, for the stinky food my mom, you know, made me take to school, 
all of that. Go back to your home country, Chinky. I, I heard it all. And instead of feeling very grateful, I, I felt like, you know, very not enough. I didn't feel like, you know, good enough in my own skin. I didn't feel tall enough. I didn't feel American enough. That feeling of not being enough, of, of not knowing that just who you are is, is completely worthy of, of, of life. I think that's where a lot of people make that turn. When, when they start to listen to the voices that says that who you are, just as you are, is, is enough. And so growing up, I had constantly needed to um, attain these external successes to make myself feel worthy. And so, you know, it was good grades, the accolades. It was um, maybe, you know, going to medical school and, you know, going to the top residencies. I want to ask you another question about your childhood because... Uh... Again, as an interview, there are things that hit me that I'm really interested in. Yeah. Were you the focus of this racism and negativity? Did it take your entire teenage years? Were you able to develop a degree of armor? Did you become popular? What were those actual steps as a child? Because those are formative years. Yeah. So what I did was I focused on, you know, I was constantly being teased, you know, even into junior high. And I was like, how do I stop? the bullying. And I created basically this persona of myself, of somebody who was funny, someone who's charismatic, somebody who did well in school, uh, somebody who, who did well in sports. And so I used these external accolades to, 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 to buffer this not enoughness that I felt inside. And I was constantly chasing these external things to, to put, put, put this facade that I had, you know, I had things together. And I knew that as I started to, you know, become funnier, as I began to do voices and impersonations for people and things like that, I did seem to fit in a little bit more, you know, when I started to excel, you know, both in sports and in academics, people were like, oh, okay, he's, he's pretty cool. What was your sport? You know, I actually played uh, high school basketball. <laughs> I'm a pretty short guy, but I played point <laughs> guard for, 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 for my high school. That makes it doubly uh, impressive. <laughs> so. Um, and that was how I compensated for this feeling of not enough, but it was constantly a chasing. And so, um, you know, I went to medical school and again, always st strove for success. I aimed to, to get into the top residencies, the top training pros, programs. And so I trained at UCLA. I trained at the National Institutes of Health. I trained at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And I don't say that to impress you or the audience. I, I say that to impress upon people that someone even going through the best training in the world can also get sick, which is what happened to me because I would probably say five, six years ago, this was probably, I don't know, six, seven years out of my training. I was constantly chasing success and it wore me down, you know, and it reminded me of a phrase that the Dalai Lama was quoted to have when he asked what he was found most interesting about humanity. He said, man, because he would sacrifice his health in order to make money and then sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And so six years ago, I find myself at the top of my career, chief of interventional radiology in my hospital. I travel around the world to you know, these large stages to speak on the advances of my field. Yet underneath my white coat, I was overweight. I was diabetic. I had high blood pressure. I was on prescription medications. How heavy were you? Uh, I was probably compared to where I probably like 40 pounds, you know, more than where I was right now. I'm not a very tall guy. I currently weigh about 155, but I was probably close to 190. Okay. Um, you know, at my worst. 
then then I realized that I wasn't given the, the tools in medical school to really become healthy. You know, what I was given at the time were prescription meds to kind of bring down my blood pressure and my blood sugars. But I didn't want to subject my life to that because I knew that if, if life were to continue the way it were to continue, um, I was going to end up in my own operating room table. And so I did a, a deep dive in nutrition, in epigenetics, in anti-aging and longevity medicine, in biohacking. And I studied with spiritual shamans and got a lot of personal development. And then I really understood what health truly, truly was. And, and it's not reliant on a medication. I mean, certainly medications do help, but a lot of root causes of, of disease stems from how we live our life. Do you think that there's a, um, a systemic philosophical issue with modern Western medicine where the emphasis might be more on not prevention, but more of intervention? That might be the wrong way of putting it. Not on prevention, but on treating the symptoms as opposed to heading them off at the pass? Absolutely. I do believe the uh, kind of traditional conventional medicine, which I was trained, is very symptom-centric. You've got a symptom, and we, there are medications to treat the symptoms, but not the underlying root cause. And that's really doesn't really fix the issue because what's driving it will get worse and worse over time, but all you're doing is putting on more Band-Aids to the situation. Why do you think that is in the modern Western medical tradition? You know, it really, I, I don't think it's it's the fault of that necessarily. I think earlier on when antibiotics first got into the scene, it was life-saving for people because what pe what put people, you know, to die, you know, earlier on were, were infections like pneumonia. And so when antibiotics came into the scenes, we were able to treat all those people that used to just die off from those infections. I got a cut on my hand and then I died. <laughs> right. But I think since that point, we had relied on medications to, um, you know, for everything that's happening. Now, here's the thing. A lot of diseases we have today are these modern diseases that, that you know, we see a lot of, like the metabolic syndrome, like diabetes, like Alzheimer's, like Parkinson's, like, like heart disease. It wasn't as prevalent before. And so what has changed? You know, the way we live life has changed, you know. Our human DNA is meant to move around every single day, to be able to sleep when, when there's daylight out, not to have all this artificial you know, light come into our system or, or these foods that are unnatural that we're eating. And so that departure from, from living the way humans are supposed to be living is bringing on all these modern diseases. So you're saying Doritos are not a natural food group? Yeah, I don't think our ancestors, ancestor Bob was not eating a Dorito, you know, 2000 years ago. Nobody eats a Dorito, Doc. <laughs> not just one, or at least certainly not Pringles, right? But you were saying. Yeah, it's our departure from how, how we should be living life that is starting to turn on genes that are accelerating chronic disease. And when I figured that out, it was how I was living my life. It was the choices that I was making. And the choices actually drive biology. When I knew that, then I'm like, well, then I just need to make some new choices. And when I started to do that, I reversed my conditions in a very short period of time. I became overweight to you know, losing all, all that weight, reversed diabetes, reversed high blood pressure, and was off of pres prescription medications. Not only that, 
I am fitter, stronger, smarter, and better looking than, than I was uh, before I started this whole thing. I'm sure you were cute as a button the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's dive down into your diet. You made a dietary change. What did you actually do diet-wise? First off, what was your diet beforehand? Yeah. So we can compare and contrast. Well, I was a very busy doctor working probably, you know, 12 to 16 hours a day. So bags of Pringles. There were probably some Pringles involved. There was certainly lots of coffee and every coffee would have six pumps of international delight. I would probably have two or th three of those every morning. And then just to get myself throughout the day, there were monster energy drinks chock full of sugar. So that was, I was basically on a sugar diet and who knows if, what else I was eating. I was probably eating some fast food and things like that, that, you know, contained a lot of added sugars. Mainlining fructose right into your liver. There you go. There you go. So that, that was primarily it was, I was not conscious of what I was putting in my mouth. Then uh, studying nutrition, you just ask yourself what our ancestors put in their mouth, right? It was very minimally processed foods, all natural, um, organic. Um, and you try to stick with that as best as possible, have clean, clean sources of vegetables and protein. I removed sugar and the processed foods from my diet and then, um, you know, incorporated intermittent fasting and within a six month period of time, I reversed my diabetes. So I'd like to know what was your, um, IF window. So my IF window is, uh, typically 12 to 1 PM and I'll, I'll normally cut things off by 8 PM. Okay. So you're doing a eight hour roughly. Yeah. eight sixteen. You changed your diet effectively. It sounds almost like a variant of paleo or what they're calling paleo currently. Yeah. I would say it's very close to that. It's, you know, there's, there's the author, um, Mark Hyman who wrote the book, um, uh, geez, I'm blanking on, on the name of the book. Oh, food. What the heck should I eat? That's a great title. That is a great title. It is a great title. And and he follows what he calls a pegan diet, which is basically a combination of paleo and, and vegan, uh, the best of, of both worlds. And, and really the diet is eat as many vegetables as you can, uh, non-starchy vegetables, you know, keep, keep most of your plate, uh, set, you know, with vegetables, include healthy fats like coconut oil, like nuts, like avocado oil, uh, ghee, and then have good sources of protein. Um, which would be grass-fed, grass-finished meats, sustainably uh, raised fish, uh, you know, pasture-raised chicken, uh, therefore, and and that's it. And and try to just get rid of the the sugar and the junk food. But if you stick with that, you know, I think uh, I think people tend to do very well. You incorporate fasting now. Some people think fasting. Oh my God, we're we're not eating. We were actually born too fast. We're, we weren't meant to be eating throughout the day, which is what, what's happening now, which is what's causing so many metabolic disorders. I mean, our ancestors ate when there was food around, and a lot of times there would not be food around. But that's why we, we were basically gifted with the ability to survive without food. And so our DNA is programmed to go through times where, where we're in a fed state and times we're in a fasted state. And with the advent of refrigeration and processed foods and things like that, people are just eating around the clock and it's taking away our inborn ability to fast and fasting is actually good for us. So that's something that we naturally should be doing. There's that. And on top of that, I would add, there was, there was a sea change in the way 
we began eating sometime in the 70s to 80s because back in the day, you had three square meals, possibly a little bit of dessert, but there was a time of the day where food consumption began. There was a time when food consumption ended. And then you had a 12, 14, 16 hour window, not because you were intermittent fasting, but because your family had stopped eating for eating for the day. And that lines up to when the obesity happened. And that's when suddenly snacking all the time became a very, very normal thing to do because prior to that, it wasn't. Absolutely. You're completely right. People had very natural periods of time where they ate. They ate when the sun, sun came up and they finished eating before the sun went down. And there wasn't anything in terms of preservation of foods and things like that. And so there were already really defined times where, where people ate. And, and again, there were times where there, there were famine and people didn't eat. And it was to our advantage where we fasted. Fast forward, now we've got the agricultural revolution that, that has provided so many more foods that are available, foods that are non-perishable. Um, and then the development of, of snack foods that you can chomp on throughout the day. And that's really kind of given people reason to snack around the clock. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people use food as a um, comfort, as a coping tool for, for, for stress and emotional things. And, and certainly I've been there too. Sometimes when you're bored, sometimes when you're stressed, it's easier to, to, to just reach for this thing because it's socially acceptable, unlike smoking or unlike drinking or unlike doing porn uh, <laughs> of this thing that, that people can reach out to do to soothe themselves. And I I get that I'm a professionally trained comfort eater done by a ninja level comfort eater herself. So (laughs) I fully understand that with the fasting thing, because I've done fasting Mm -hmm. and the very first time I tried it, I was scared to death. I was the the first day I didn't eat. I almost had a panic attack over it. The second day was easy. The first day was hard as all hell. And I think that's part of the problem. People think of fasting as this aberrant thing because we are so conditioned that you eat every day. You don't only eat every day, you eat at this point six to 12 times a day. Yeah. But it's a lot easier than people realize. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't say easier. It's what we were born to do. We have forgotten how to do it. And, and we, you know, we shouldn't be blaming people also. It's, it's something that they've learned through culture, through a lot of marketing dollars thrown their way about about the things that they should be eating, how they should be eating and things like that. And so, you know, I never want to point the finger at somebody who, who is, uh, you know, having problems where, where they feel like they need to be eating all the time or have the belief that they need to eat all the time. This makes it sound like a conspiracy. It's not, it's just business, but there has been an army of marketing people, psychologists, everything. And this is what the average person is up against using our natural biology, our natural wants and desires to trigger us to go spend money. Cause that's absolutely. I mean, that's what marketing is. Marketing people understand human behavior, marketing people understand the fears that human has. And, and a lot of times it's, it, it's the heighten those fears so that you can make a purchase or, or to click on something. And so how much, when you're trying to work with somebody and get them on the right path, how much time do you have to spend effectively going <laughs> to put it in a very conspiratorial way? And I don't mean in this way, but how much time do you have to spend deprogramming them? A big chunk of times, because if you ask most people, they know exactly what they need to do. Unfortunately, they don't do it. So it's, it's not a matter of a conscious 
awareness of, of what they need to do or not. It's the subconscious beliefs and thoughts that have been programmed to them and habitualized to a way of behaving. And that's what we're up against. And so I spend a lot of time coaching people to look at what's coming up for them when, when they've got that craving or when they've got you know a surge of anger or an unpleasant feeling, what's coming up for them and letting them know that there's nothing wrong with them. It's a certain subconscious you know, things that they picked up at a very, very early age that makes uh, behavior change harder, you know, harder to change, you know, to change. But that is actually the majority of the work, because like I said, I think many people know, you know, what the good foods are. Many people know they should be sleeping a certain period of time and dealing with their stress. They just find it a very hard time to act on, on that new behavior. Yes. For example, the challenge isn't working out at the gym. Right. The challenge is getting to the front door of the gym. Yes. Yeah. Usually, usually when you when you start, you have your 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 over the activation energy already. So just just getting yourself to to that next step. And there could be a lot of lot of things that are stopping people, like oh, I'll never be thin, or it's not going to work for me, or you know what? Not today because I'm just so stressed out. I'm going to go to the gym and people are going to judge me. That tends to be a big one. Yeah. Since you are an expert on transforming people's lives, I want you to reach out, speak to somebody who's sitting there feeling despondent about where they are at. Mm -hmm. If you had five minutes on some random podcast to try to change somebody's life, what bit of advice could you give right now in the here and now to try to help this person get themselves moving again? What are the pieces of information you could do at this moment that could start affecting them? Well, I want to tell anybody out there who might be struggling that you are absolutely your best medicine. So when it turns out that when it comes to health, when it comes to longevity, when it comes to peak performance, it all boils down to how healthy your cells are. If you keep your cells healthy, you're going to have healthy tissues, healthy organs, healthy systems, and that's going to give you with optimal health, longevity, and peak performance. On the flip side, if you don't keep your cells healthy, that leads to unhealthy cells, unhealthy tissues, unhealthy organs, unhealthy systems. That's when you get symptoms. That's when you get you know, uh, fatigue, weight gain, things like that. That's when you get chronic disease. So it all comes down to cellular health. So the next question is, how do you optimize cellular health? Well, it turns out that our DNA, what we get from mom and dad, only plays a very small role to what cellular health is. What actually matters is how this DNA interacts with its environment. Every cell is listening to its environment to determine, is it a healthy environment? Is it safe? And if it's a good environment, then the cell will prosper and will become this optimal state cell. So if you provide the right environment for that cell, you will have access to optimal health, longevity, and peak performance. And what gives that environment? I call it the bioenergetic state. The bioenergetic state is this energetic environment we give to our cells. And it's actually made up of seven things that you can control. Sleep, nutrition, movement. Those are the physical things. Your emotions and, and your stress levels. Relationships, your thoughts and mindset and purpose. These are the seven major levers that control that environment for yourself. So guess what? When you want to optimize optimal health, 
all you need to do is focus on those seven things. And it's not what you got from mom or dad. It ultimately comes down to your choices and your habits. Access to longevity, peak performance, and optimal health is a lagging indicator of your habits in those seven areas of life. And if you can understand that, you could be your own doctor. If you can understand that, you'll recognize that your choices, your habits, and your actions will ultimately give you access to whatever you want, which again means that you are your best medicine. So I need to ask out of those seven, I, I highly doubt that they are equally weighted. Which would you say is the one that causes people the most problem? I would, I would probably say you're, you're probably right. They're, they're not equally weighted. And I wouldn't necessarily say that there is one particular one that causes somebody problems most, but uh, they're all different for every person. What I can answer is where should you start? And where you should start is the easiest one for you to implement. Because that's going to give you, because when you work, see, here's the, here's the cool thing also, all these seven things are energetically related. So if you work on one thing, it's going to make it easier. You're going to actually elevate your bioenergetic state. It's going to make it easier to work on something else. For example, you start sleeping better. Guess what? Your growth hormone and your sex hormones are going to go up. You're going to feel like you have more energy. What are you going to do with that energy? Okay, well, now you're going to start working out. Guess what? You start working out, that's going to increase endorphins. You're going to start to feel better. It's going to increase brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which will allow you to think clearer. You're going to detoxify more when you work out. Guess what? You've raised your bioenergetic state. All of a sudden, your emotions, you'll notice, are, are, are elevated. So they're all interconnected. And if you work on one thing, it's going to make it easier for you to work on something else. So where should you start? You should start on the thing that's easiest for you to apply. Is it going to be getting an additional hour or two of sleep? Is it going to be getting rid of sugar and processed foods? Is it going to be incorporating times of the day where you just take some breathing to breathe out some of that stress that's happening to you? It's all these things. And, and so, you know, I wrote this book, Thrive State, to let people know what these seven things are and some practical tools people can use to install new habits and get rid of bad ones. And that's all it is. It's, it's, it's just about getting rid of habits that are bad for your health installing habits that are good. And your health is just a lagging indicator of those habits. And you know that if you were to follow through with those habits, optimal health and longevity is like automatic. There's no way of not getting that if you, if you follow the program. Unless, of course, you've, you've gotten a few things like metal poisoning or a chronic infection and things like that, that, that you should work with the doctor to, to see if you got. But for the most part, a lot of these you know, conditions and symptoms um, and diseases are lifestyle based and you control the lifestyle components first, you'll start to notice a huge difference. Cool. I'm going to ask you also for just a little bit more advice, but a little more specific out of all this. So we've got Bob and we're throwing Bob in the gym and Bob is turned up at the gym. How should Bob get himself moving at the gym? How should Bob start off? So your question is Bob's what at the gym? He's, 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 he's taking your advice. Yeah, he's, he's going to the gym. He's going to the gym. He's got to the gym. My God, there's a lot of stuff in the gym. What does Bob do at the gym? Well, you know, I go to a gym, as, as you know, and I train with a trainer and a bunch of training buddies. And so I often find that whenever you've got a accountability group, no matter what you're doing, if you're trying to install a new habit, that's always helpful. What should Bob do? Well, I mean, I think Bob should, you know, 
I, I don't go to the gym with a plan. I listen to what my trainer tells me to do. Um, and I think it's more important that you go out and you move every day, whether it be walk, taking the stairs, going out in nature, going for, for a small little jog. All that stuff is important. If you want to lift weights, great. I don't want to put a big complex plan out there for people not to be able to follow through with. But you know what Bob should do when he gets to the gym? Move. There you go, Bob. Start moving. So, Doc, any additional thoughts or um, advice to impart to my audience? Yeah, I, I want to give people one last tool that they can, um, they can walk away with. Like I said, the, the access to optimal health is really comes down to our choices. So the next question is, how do I make better choices, right? And I basically took this technique from a famous quote of Viktor Frankl, the author of Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Holocaust survivor that saw basically tons of death and destructions to his friends and family. But he still had this to say, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose a response. And in our response lies our growth and freedom. That basically what he's saying is that whatever trigger you might have that like it's that's inciting a craving or that's inciting anger that's or inciting you to do something you wouldn't normally like to do. There's a trigger and a, your own natural response to what that might be. If you could just create a little bit of space in there, and how do I like to do it? Go for a walk in nature. Take 10 deep breaths in through your nose, out through your mouth. What that will do is it'll activate your parasympathetic nervous system. It will actually dampen that response. So whatever craving you have, you do 10 deep breaths, that craving will drop. And it'll give yourself what Viktor Frankl says is that space. There's a space between stimulus and response. You increase that space. In that space, you get to choose. And what do you do in that space? You act. Awareness, choice, and take action. Have the awareness. Oh my God, there's that trigger again. Okay, what, what is this? Am I uncomfortable? Am I actually hungry? Have the awareness that, that you're starting to feel that way. C is choice. What's your intention? Are you going to go and eat that chocolate cake because you want to reach out for it? Do you want to yell at this person that just run you over in the freeway? What do you want to choose? Or do you want to choose to show up in love and gratitude and, and choose to show up in that highest version of yourself? When you make that choice, take action. When you do that, what, what you would do is you start weakening the link between the previous trigger and, and the response you're used to and laying down a new pathway of how to act. That's how you start breaking old habits. And that's how you choose over and over again. You choose to be this next best version of yourself. You start making new choices. You will have a new bioenergetic state and that will put you in the thrive state, which will give you access to optimal health, longevity, and peak performance. Great. So, Doc, where can people find you when they're not finding you here? Right. Well, uh, I am everywhere on social media at KianVuMD. You could also look me up on my website at KianVu.com, K-I-E-N-V-U-U, or pick up a copy of my book, Thrive State, at ThriveStateBook.com. Again, thank you so much for joining me. And as for me, I'm the fittest fat kid you know. And I should listen to some of the stuff he just said. But you can find me at all of my socials. They are either Fittest Fat Kid or, as I'm transitioning them over, to Bruce Naxon. N-A-C-H-S-I-N. If you've got a question, concern about your own fitness, if you want to talk to somebody, you can talk to me. And you can do that by emailing me at hi there at fittestfatkid.com. Wherever you're listening or watching or seeing this or having this foisted upon you, 
leave a like, subscribe. If there's an ability to leave a comment, do so. I love hearing from people. I'm so lonely by myself over here. But no matter who you are, no matter where you are, hold yourself accountable, but do it with kindness and understanding. And I'll talk to you next week.